Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. We're back at Sundance 2021. This is our documentary episode, if you will. And we are joined by our friend John Wildman from filmsgonewild.com. Today we're covering the documentaries Rebel Hearts, Bring Your Own Brigade, and a concerto is a conversation. So enjoy. And we are on filmsgonewild.com and Bitch Talk. My name is John Wildman. I'm here with my co-host, Angela Tabora and Aaron Lim. We are virtually at Sundance 2021, and we're going to talk about the documentary Rebel Hearts. Uh, with us today, the director, Pedro Cos. Pedro, nice to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, we are all loving on this film. So... Um, why don't you introduce our audience who has not yet had a chance to see the film, what Rebel Hearts is about? Well, Rebel Hearts is about the extraordinary kick-ass Immaculate Heart, uh, Immaculate Heart Sisters um, who were an order of Catholic nuns in Hollywood, California, who bravely stood up uh, to the patriarchy of the Catholic Church um, and the ever-powerful Cardinal McIntyre um, standing up for their what they believed in um, and who took part in movements like the civil rights movements, the anti-Vietnam War movements, um, and continue to cause waves to today. That yeah. is in a nutshell. Okay, well, we, we, well, we, have a, we, have, we have a Catholic school girl in, in our midst, and I think Aaron and I are going to take a back seat to Angela. Angela, you <laughs> the talk. Yeah, Pedro, I, I can't tell you how much I, I love this film. I'm a recovering Catholic schoolgirl. And um, I grew up in LA and IMAC was our rival high school. So oh, wow. um, it really just touched on a lot of things from my past. Like, you know, I see a nun today and I have a visceral reaction. Like I lower my head and I soften my voice, you know, it's just something I live with. But um, I love that you talk about the history of why they became nuns in the first place, especially growing up in the 50s and the 60s. These are just independent women who didn't necessarily want to get married and have kids, you know, and they, they saw a chance to get an education. And I really, for someone like me who has seen nuns one way my whole life, I was actually thinking like, hot damn, if I was born in the 50s, maybe I would have become a nun, you know? And um, <laughs> I, I'm just curious to see how this film has changed some preconceived notions that you may have had about the nunnery or organized religion in general. Absolutely. I, you know, Angela, so there with you in terms of uh, the, to put a, to be, to put a very, my very ambivalent relationship uh, with, um, with the institutional Catholic church, you know, growing up as mm -hmm. a, as a, as a gay man in, in Catholic Brazil, uh, you know, that was always a, a very, um, fractious and tricky relationship. Um, and one of the things is that they 
bloom open my imagination of sort of the antithesis of what you think of what my mom's a Catholic school, what my Catholic school uh, upbringing was. Uh, and it was really one of opportunity and possibility of, of being reaching out and being part of the world of empowering um, not only their sisters, but their students to be all they, 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 they could be leaders. And this was the most refreshing thing is that this was a time when um, women were afforded a lot, you know, even less opportunities. Um, they were very, um, for, you know, growing up in the 40s and the 50s, all, in, all the way through, you know, it, the, the the second wave of feminism in the, the late 60s and, and 70s, um, there were not very many options. And as one of the former students said, um, this was a time when it was um, rare for women women to uh, get a college degree in in the way that they you know in the way that we take you know, that we see now. But one of the things that was really e extraordinary was to see this. Um, incredible community come and empower each other. And they, um, the, the Immaculate Heart Sisters would send their fellow sisters to get PhDs. They had more PhDs than all of the priests in Los Angeles. They were getting PhDs from Stanford, from Columbia, from, the, from USC, from the best educational institutions so they could come back and be the best teachers and professors to empower their students to go out and be leaders to uh, to be leaders in the the world of art, the world of science, the world of business, the world of politics. Um, and there are many, you know, alumni of the you know of the Immaculate Heart College who went on to have very influential careers and who credit um, these extraordinary women for. Um, um, for their leadership, for their empowerment. Um, and I think um, that's what was so refreshing because we're, you know, Angela, you and I were sort of very used to a certain, you know, my, uh, my, my mom has, you know, her share of very uh, scary, my, I might add, it was also terrified of the nuns that she went to, uh, to she studied under. Um, but I think looking at it from the lens, one of the things that that was really kind of mind blowing. Is looking from that lens of like the lack of opportunity um, that that they were afforded, and if they if marriage, as as Professor Briggs says, if like marriage and being the, leading that kind of life was not in was not appealing, was not in the cards, options were very limited, um, and it's really fascinating to see, um, you know, the many different reasons why um, they joined the orders. I have a question for you because I was struck by um, something that I wasn't expecting in watching the movie. Uh, Summer of Soul uh, has gotten a lot of kudos, uh, appropriately so, uh, for this year's Sundance for um, showing us uh, the late 60s and giving us a snapshot into the late 60s. But I have to tell you, Rebel Hearts, you, um, you know, during that late 60s period with, and with Karita's art and, 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 and the footage you have, man, you just drop us right into, um, you know, in, into that period. And so my question is this, is that I could have seen the possibility this could have been a very standard issue talking head documentary, but you successfully do not have that. You 
through your footage, through the way you, through the editing, you give us a very vibrant film to tell this story. And I would love for you to talk about um, the efforts and the challenges um, in putting that together in that way to make sure that we had something that took us for a colorful ride as opposed to just a lot of information. Well, thank you. I, first of all, uh, that means the world uh, to hear that coming from you. That, that was always the goal to, to make it because they were vibrant. They were colorful and joyous. And for me, the, the way I, I, I like to tell stories is exactly to be as immersive as possible, to, to envelop you in the world for us, for us, the, the viewer, to go along on the ride with them, to feel and experience in a way almost like we're experiencing with them. Um, this, was, this was made possible through many different ways and through and through collaborating with extraordinary artists. Um, first, um, I you know I have to really call out our extraordinary visionary producer Shawnee Isaac Smith, who 20 years ago began documenting these extraordinary women and be, uh, and amass a treasure trove um, of firsthand accounts with a lot of them who are unfortunately no longer with us. Um, people like um, Anita Caspery and Helen Kelly and Pat Reef, um, who you know unfortunately have since left us. But um, the Shawnee was able to film their firsthand accounts and also begin to amass uh, another treasure trove of archival. Now, the materials where we're we're talking about are you know sit down interviews um, and some footage of, of them as a community. And then we began to amass photographs. There's some film fr um, from their own archives, um, correspondence, um, and, um, and then there are other filmmakers uh, like Bayless Glasscock, Tom Conrad, Haskell Wexler, and others who were filming uh, at the Immaculate Heart College in the 60s. So when you know when we discover that that was just like ooh other treasure trove and you see that film it is a Kodak a Kodachrome dream literally <laughs> it is uh, it is a wonderful and you know for lack of a better word delicious um, so so lovely and and wonderful um, and so one of the things was amassing all these different um, different elements and then for the for the spots that we didn't uh, have anything really to tell the story, we, we wanted to be a little bit, think outside the box. We had our, uh, our saying in, in the edit room, whenever we were stuck, whenever anything, we would ask ourselves, what would Karita do? Um, and uh, she and the IHMs were always sort of guiding lights. And um, we, we thought, well, Karita would probably you know, bring this to life in a different way. And so I, I began to discuss with um, Judy Korn, who is uh, one of our amazing producers and has a background with animation. And I was like, I was thinking of animation and she's like, mm, and an animation that feels tactile, that feels like it's born out of Karita's art. Um, and Judy said, why don't you look at this extraordinary Icelandic animator Una Lawrenson, 
who uh, is based in Montreal. And then I looked at Una's work and literally jaw dropped. I was like, that's it. That's Rebel Hearts. That is because there was this beautiful artisanal tactile um, treatment in, uh, in the way that she worked with animation. Um, and when we connected, she was also so inspired by Karita's art. And we began to have this beautiful uh, collaboration where um, in order to bring the story to life and to make it a cohesive element throughout, um, she began to animate sections of the story. Um, and, and then everything kind of like took a cue from that, you know, our motion graphics team, which, uh, you know, uh, we had six extraordinary motion graphics artists also really kind of taking um, a cue from them and from um, a lot of what the Immaculate Hearts were doing at that time at the college. They had something, this extraordinary bulletin called the Irregular Bulletin that was graphically <laughs> really inventive um, and also outside the box with the, the, how they use typography and how they um, layered in images and um, it was all really vibrant. And I think it just contributed that um, to, uh, to that liveliness at that time and something that we wanted to replicate on our end on how we, you know, we approach the visual style of the film. Yeah, yeah. What, one of my favorite parts of the film is, is watching these women after everything that they've gone through. It didn't turn them away from their faith. You know, they form their own secular group and they're like, OK, we're going to do, do it our own way off, off over here on the side. And I think uh, the fact that they didn't lose faith and they realized that they could still carry on in their own manner is, is such an important lesson. I'm hoping that across the board, Catholic institutions share this in, in Catholic schools. Um, and I, it's just beautiful because it, like love, love doesn't look like one thing. Success doesn't look like one thing and neither does faith. You know, faith is something that's so personal. Um, so I'm wondering what the, if at all the Catholic community has reached out or seen this and, and how these women are perceived by them today. Absolutely. Well, I love that you said that. I, I, I really, that re very much resonates with, with how I feel as well, Angela. And thank you for saying that. Um, I, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting because um, there, the film and the story has also been really embraced by the Catholics who I've, I've heard from who, um, um, from Catholic sisters who have been inspired, I think, um, by, by the story of the Immaculate Hearts. Um, you know, um, there, there, there are accounts um, that after the, the Immaculate Hearts split from the institutional church and, you know, formed a community that they heard from um, other, they, they heard from other communities um, that in a way either apologize or um, uh, for not standing up for the, for them or um, or just in solidarity, you know, saying that there were when this was all happening, communities around the country and, and frankly around the world were well also beginning to reform because this was a, a specifically a extremely well educated group of extraordinary women, you know, they were definitely, I think, leaders in that movement, but they were not the only ones. Um, and, um, 
And so this was happening in around the country. And I think for many communities, it was a bit alarming to see the fierce reaction from the from the Los Angeles uh, Archdiocese and Cardinal McIntyre. Um, and they, you know, they had some support, but at the end of the day, it's really hard standing up to a, an inst- that side, you know, the, the mastodon that it is. The, the, and so, um, but decades later, um, the, it, the church and many sections of the church, because I think we see the institution as a monolith, but I think is actually a lot more fragmented and, um, you know, has different pods uh, than, than we, you know, than sometimes we think about. Um, but there are very, very sympathetic um, uh, people within the Catholic Church and then within the Catholic institution, actually, that are, um, even we hear from uh, the former secretary to, to Cardinal McIntyre, who, um, who re- expresses, you know, in a level, a certain level of regret for how they were treated. Um, and they were extremely treated extremely unfairly. Um, and I think it's easier for many of them, even if they don't agree with everything that the, the sisters were doing, but it's easier for, for them to, to see that now. Um, and, um, but in a way it's, I have to, I have to ask if, if this hadn't happened, one of the wonderful things that I think is that they, their imagination and their faith went beyond the structure and they thought beyond structures. And that's what, that's also something that's very beautiful to me and sort of revolutionary. And I think um, in a way they sacrificed a lot, but I think it opened you know, new worlds for people like me who has felt, you know, also, not very welcome by a certain institution and mm-hmm. see the possibility of a faith out, you know, as you said, that faith is something very personal and they followed their, their personal convictions and they are still doing great work and they're still out there. So there is a way. And I think in a way um, their sacrifices and their struggles have not been in vain because I think they have opened a new life for a lot of people, including myself. Well, I think you you really have have given um, you know as a, a, to to do a one a one film document on the history of of what they went through, what they achieved, um, who these women were. Um, it's remarkable, and you know, I mean, you obviously you had subjects that deserve celebrating. And you know, and certainly sp- speak for themselves, and and just emanate all kinds of charisma and 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 and, and wonderfulness. And this film really delivers. Uh, uh, Pedro, congratulations on the film. Again, we've been talking about Rebel Hearts with the director Pedro Cas. Thank you so much for uh, being with us. It's been an honor being here. Thank you so much for having me. We are on filmsgonewild.com and Bitch Talk. I'm John Wildman. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lim and Angela Tabora. And we are virtually 
here at Sundance 2021 and talking to Lucy Walker about Bring Your Own Brigade, uh, the documentary. And, uh, and, and Lucy, uh, we're going to have you um, introduce your film to the folks who have not seen it as yet before we dive into this and before we go into our reminiscing of, I think, 20 film festivals I've had uh, that you have been present at over the past decade. So That's right. tell us about Bring Your Own Brigade. Bring Your Own Brigade is a new feature documentary and it's about um, fire. It's about these terrible mega fires that we are having and uh, about the human beings that are caught up in them and the stories and wanting to get to the bottom of what firefighters are going through, what residents are going through and um, what's going on. Basically, what is going on? Mega fires, WTF. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, and by the way, let's solve them, can we? Are right. we okay? Are we gonna burn? Because I don't want to. So- well, I think, you know, I, I think, I think Erin is gonna lead off here, I believe. Um, but, but I just wanted to, before she uh, started, in, as, as we start grilling you about the film, I do want to say initially that the three of us um, you know, last year we had on Ron Howard with his film about paradise and, and it's a tough film to watch and what have you. And, but I have to say your film, um, I was putting it this way. I debate on Facebook a lot and I, and I'm someone that's always looking up research and I'm always like going and posting background and backup or whatever. And your film hits this from every goddamn angle you can think of and that we didn't even think of to your immense credit I mean, it is devastating to watch, and 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 the film, every different turn that you take, I'm going, holy shit! I didn't even think about that part of it. Jesus Christ! And there's that too. Um, so so we were overwhelmed uh, uh, by Bring Your Own Brigade, and and now now that I've hyped this to the extreme, I'll hand it off to Aaron. <laughs> oh Jesus, John! I thought there was a question there. Um, <laughs> yeah, there there are a lot of stories within this uh, within this umbrella. Um, I, I, I will say fuck Kim Kardashian forever. Thank you for reinforcing <laughs> my feeling about her and her family. And, um, but to that storyline, you talk about them hiring a private firefighting brigade. And also, um, can you talk about, uh, more of that? And if, if you found that the wealth gap between those fires down in, in Southern California and up in Northern California, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. So I wanted, I wanted to see if you could talk more about that. There is, I'm just realizing which mic am I on? Oh no, I think maybe I just meant to check on a good mic. Um, just panicking about the mic. Um, but uh, should I not panic about it? If you can hear me, that's fine. I do have a good, we're all good. Hit? Okay, good. I may get closer to my good mic. Um, so, um, you know, when you're in hell, you're in hell. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. And I think these people caught up in the fires and the firefighters, I think we're all really bonded. And I wanted to make the film that really includes everyone. Uh, one of the things I loved about the film actually was I got out of my own bubble. You know, I've lived in, um, you know, these urban cosmopolitan, uh, you know, kind of Democrat leaning progressive kind of places. And um, I really loved visiting these more rural areas and meeting more people that, um, you know, uh, just 
think differently than I do about things. And I think the film is, is about how we're gonna come together, not to have our Biden unity moment, but I think it is a Biden unity moment. I think that the film is about how we're not gonna solve this on our own. And I think speaking as someone who immigrated from England to California on my own, and as many of our, you know, ancestors did, your ancestors did. I personally immigrated myself. Um, but I think that now it's sort of about like, oh my gosh, this problem is so huge. We're gonna have to like come together. And um, I don't even blame uh, Kim for the f private firefighters. I'm sure her insurance company made her do it actually. Um, hmm. And um, because this is the pickle that we're all in. And um, so, uh, and there are, it is a complicated story and, and thank you for saying uh, there are all these different angles. There just are, and actually there, it there's a lot of, it was a lot to research, but I really wanted there to be a place where people could look at the whole problem because it is kind of a holistic 360 thing that we're in that's causing these, that's causing this problem. I think if fire was a simpler problem, we'd have solved it. And there's a reason it, we haven't solved it. And we're having these bigger and bigger, bigger fires, 2020 being the worst year ever. And um, unfortunately, we're absolutely sad to con continue that. And it's not just climate change. I did go in with the right. assumption that it was climate change, which would uh, make sense, right? We've had the hottest temperatures and the biggest fires. And I thought, well, that's it. That's, that's the correlation you need and I'm going to make a film about climate change in my own backyard and um and I kind of did in a much bigger way than I ever planned it um but it isn't just climate change that's causing these fires and that was a real revelation to me so I wanted to share that with the audience that you know all these experts what I was learning was that it's not just climate change climate change is the performance enhancer it's making it worse, but these places would burn whether or not we had climate change. They, they burn well before we had climate change and they're gonna keep burning. The first European that showed up um, to, the, to, the, to California, um, uh, he landed uh, and, and it was what is now Los Angeles and it was covered in smoke. And he called this area that's now Los Angeles, the Bahia de los Fumos, the Bay of Smoke, because it was all on fire. And that was when the first European showed up. And so um, it's it's been on fire forever and it's gonna keep being on fire. And um, the question is, um, you know, are the fires getting worse? Why are they getting worse? Why are we building homes in the middle of it that, mm -hmm. that aren't fire resilient? And then not, not setting residents um, up and then putting these poor firefighters in harm's way and expecting them to be able to solve these fires that actually aren't solvable, you know, and that we don't understand that. And, and you really see that play out in the film. You see people not understanding why the firefighters can't save their homes because they can't. These fires are too big and the winds are too strong and this fuel has piled up too much. Um, and um, it's not a firefighting problem. You know, so uh, going in and finding out what kind of a problem it is and learning the stuff that we can do, which is great news, right? As somebody says <laughs> in the movie, like, thank goodness it's not just climate change, because if there was, that'd be much harder to solve, because climate change is going to take us a little while to solve, right? Uh, hopefully. And so this is um, actually really good news, the stuff we can do. But then you start to get into, well, why aren't we doing it? And it got really interesting uh, to watch. Yeah. 
<laughs> yes, right? exactly. That was infuriating, uh, among other things. And I, I really think that Bring Your Own Brigade could be the title of the making of this documentary as well, because the sheer knowledge and research and people that you had to bring, experts and such that you had to bring, is just insane. So thank you for I, the crazy amount of work that you put into this. I but keep noticing that it really, really was. It was a crazy amount of work. I, I, I had to be a little bit obsessed or I would have just, there were so many times when I thought like, can we start now? Like, say <laughs> that's like, you don't need to know the rest of it, you know, but you do, you kind of I really wanted personally to understand the whole story. And I feel like that's what documentaries do, right? Documentaries are the best medium, I think, for understanding a complicated story like properly yep. and emotionally engaging it. So you feel like you've got friends in the situation that like you really trust emotionally the story and you really get a grip on it so that you can feel really, really informed and empowered um, like no other medium. Uh, if I read a magazine article, they can be incredible and more in depth and say more clever things than a film maybe, but they're not going to like put you there and, and make you kind of make you friends with the people in it. Right. In a way that you could um, see them on the street and just, they'd be like friends to you and you'd really know what their life is about, for example. And I just think film is the best medium for that. And that's why I persisted, yeah. Well, you know, I think um, one of the things amidst all this that, 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 that I really, really appreciated, but you just touched on a, a little bit ago was the historical aspect of this. You know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the political historian, Heather Cox Richardson. And because she, you know, she lays out a lot of shit that we're going through um, politically and then gives us the background like you know how, how the misuse of socialism actually began during reconstruction in the 1870s because you know uh, you know white people didn't want you know to you know to you know, to, to um, let you know black people own things and so they, they and so they they said it was because of socialism that's the problem it's socialism and today we're still dealing with that mm -hmm. and so the fact that you you know, even with this, we're, of course, climate change, of course, we're talking about that, you know, and, and, and of course, we're talking about, um, you know, the, the electric company, and of course, we're talking about clear cutting, um, but you even take it even further to, you know, to, to, to literally showing us the dominoes through the years that have done this. So my question, and I actually do have a question this time, um, but <laughs> the, question, the question is, you know, that discovery process for you as the filmmaker, because it's one thing for you to drive up to, to, to you know to to the central coast of California and you know and up in that area and see the devastation and start digging as any documentarian you know would, but it's another thing for you to take it as far. So talk about your personal discovery process, which then led to the depth of this film. Mm, thank you. Well, I felt like. Um, Oh, it's so interesting. I felt like sometimes the fire burns things away and lets you see a little bit farther. And literally, actually, in some of these areas, when the fire burns away, you see these layers of history in this fascinating way. You'll see old mine shafts or old logging equipment from 100 years ago that had been all covered up by the forest. And when the forest is uh, cleaned out, you see these layers of history. And um, there's even the, the, this road we were filming on called Ishi Lane. You're like, well, who's Ishi? 
Um, and, uh, and Ishi was the last, quote, wild Indian. Um, and um, he, his whole family had been scalped. Um, and so he was hiding in the forest. And after a wildfire, I think it was about 1910, he was hungry after a fire. And so he ventured into um, a village of Konkau, which is some, where we filmed, for food and was caught and was like a fully... Um, sort of uncontact, uncontacted person because he'd, um, his, he'd been very small when his family had been brutally murdered in front of him and he'd just hidden um, and uh, witnessed it and then been too scared to come out and ever again. And um, so uh, this area that we're in of California, I guess I can't believe how close the history layers are to the surface and that me as a newcomer, maybe it's my um, kind of beginner's mind kind of goggles you know I'm a newcomer so I can ask these dumb questions like well what happened here and you know coming as a Brit to California for my film career you know and loving the nature and you know I love I love California it's such a beautiful fun fresh outdoorsy lifestyle but you've got the work the creative work but the fantastic spectacular nature right and you think well this place is great but like put the fires out right and and so actually kind of unpicking my own kind of own journey and thinking, well, yeah, I have this kind of entitled feeling that I want to control nature and that I've come on my own and I'm going to get what I want. And that's my dream, you know, and then realizing like, oh gosh, I'm not the first European that did that. In fact, we've had these waves of booms with the, um, you know, Silicon Valley, yep. whether it's music, Silicon Valley, um, uh, aerospace um, and the gold rush. And then also the timber boom, which I'd never thought of. Who's thought of the timber boom? Actually the, the houses um, right around the fire that we take a really close look at in paradise, actually the, the trees there, um, they say built San Francisco. Um, mm -hmm. And so, because with lumber, you don't take it very far. It's really big to move around. So if you want to build a bunch of houses like they did in San Francisco at one time when they were just putting up San Francisco, um, they took the fire from right there in the Sierra Nevada foothills. And um, so they took the, 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 the logs, um, the, the lumber, the timber. And um, so you kind of see these layers of history and you start to see this big story about the landscape. And you start to understand why, um, as one of our characters puts it, why was mother nature pissed? You know, <laughs> what exactly is going, has gone on in this landscape that isn't what it used to be? because these fires are bigger, they're on a scale we've never seen before and they're killing so many people and so many animals and, and, and burning such a huge acreage um, and burning so much hotter than before. So even um, really fire adapted species, these iconic California species like the giant sequoia, which I yeah. revere. I looked at those pictures and picture books of a car driving through a tree, not probably very good for the tree in retrospect, but really exciting to see as a <laughs> girl growing up in England with like wonderful trees, but not that tall or old, right? Mm -hmm. You look at these trees and you know that this like California is this like epic, you know, scale. And um, to understand that these incredible creatures, the oldest, biggest creatures on the planet amongst them, you know, um, and their seed pods, you know, uh, don't open until the fire comes through right. and, and the heat melts it, right? And, and the seeds come out. Um, uh, so they're they literally adapted for fire, right? They don't even reproduce until there's a fire um, and they're getting burned because the fires now are too hot. 
you're like, something is off. This isn't the normal um, way these forests used to burn. Something's really different happening here. And, um, and also learning, which was really crazy to me, that these fires happen all the time. And even actually in Paradise, which is one of the fires we really look at, last summer in 2020, another fire burned in that killed 16 people already. So just uh, less than two years later, um, 16 people were killed again in a really horrible way when a fire just came through really quickly. Um, and so I think we've got to look at that and more and more people are pouring into these areas because we're all looking for houses, right? And um, so we're kind of, um, you know, really a lot of us are really in horrible danger. And so uh, the more I knew about that and the more I, talk to these people who've lost their houses, it's devastating, you know, and um, and it's not just people that die in the fires. I mean, the stress of what people go through, uh, I just actually had a terrible, um, sad shock. I've been trying to find people to invite them to the premiere. And actually one of them is in hospital due to injuries sustained in the fire still. Mm. And um, I thought she was doing okay. And she's, uh, she's the mayor of Malibu's wife. She's back in the hospital. And um, another of our characters has died, has passed away. Um, and he was this very traumatized um, young mm. man who says that he'd seen the um, people being burned to death and he looks very visibly traumatized. And sure enough, um, he um, has just died. And uh, mm. the trauma was really that precipitating factor, I would say. And so you've realized that the toll it's taken, it's not just that death toll, which was bad enough in paradise it was 85 people in that one day in the most um, sort of frightening kind of a death as well. Not, not the kind of death that you can say, oh gosh, well, that was a nice peaceful way to go, you know? Um, really um, difficult stuff. And, um, but it's not just that, it's the um, real, it can have some really difficult impacts um, on um, people's lives and a lot of people homeless and really hurting um, uh, or even dying after the fact. And so I felt really moved by this and really determined to try to um, understand it. And the firefighters, I think, were really helpful as well because they know that the public doesn't really get it. And sometimes, and they really want public the public to understand it better so that they can be better allies to themselves. And, um, uh, and also just, yeah, be safer. And so um, the firefighters were really amazing uh, about everything, by the way. And they are also good looking, but that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> um, they are unbelievable people. Just, they're unbelievable people, right? They just are the best people. They just want to help. And they're so smart and so good. And they're, I always work with them, like, will you teach me how to like think like a firefighter? Because they're just so good at... Um, thinking in crises and you see in the film as well some of the incredible acts of like above and beyond what they're trained to do or what you could expect a human being to do and how they really saved hundreds of people by individual acts of just courage and thinking kind of calmly and creatively actually in really really um crazy uh corners to save themselves and just whole bunches of people around them and um, so it was incredible, but they're really also, they let me in, they let me in the truck with them in the, during fires and they let, uh, they really 
let us in in that way that I think makes great documentaries because the audience doesn't want the polite version. You know, you're sitting there, you don't want to hear everything's fine, you know, because it's not true and it's not helpful and it's not interesting either. Um, you want to get really, you know, what's happening. And so only I feel like some people have that gift of really opening up. And those are the people that as a filmmaker you want to find. And because you know, those are the people that the audience is going to really, um, that feeling of like really getting to know what they're going through. That's so uniquely the gift of documentaries, I think. And um, the firefighters really let me in. So I think you feel you really get their perspective as well. And they really need people to understand what's going on. So I, people really wanted to share and the residents as well, just let me, you know, in. And um, we have one particularly amazing story that I don't want to spoil it, but it kind of just like, if you wanted a story that kind of exemplifies kind of how human beings like can not just defy death, but also kind of um, embody life, you know, and, and the amazing ability of life to um, renew and move forward. Mm. Um, I think that, 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 there's one story that like writes a beautiful arc for me. And I felt very, um, just a real arc of life and death that was incredible to witness actually. I'm glad you mentioned that at the end because, you know, unfortunately we are, you know, out, out of time. And again, to your credit, you know, we could frankly do an hour version yes. of the show. <laughs> yes. And, and um, uh, cause I know also, I, I believe, uh, Angela, is, it, is your brother-in-law is a firefighter? Yeah, yeah, he is in LA, LA County, yeah. Oh, there you go, yeah, and I, they're amazing, and I can't handle firefighters being criticized. I'm sure we're all fallible, et cetera, right? But, um, but the, the firefighters are really, um, when it all gets too tough for regular people, like we call firefighters, right? And um, they, they're there and they'll take care of everything that's just like too advanced for normal human beings to handle. And um, like they, they, they're kind of, um, they are real heroes. But I also um, wanna make sure that we don't just hero worship them, that we right. also actually like show up and do the work that means that yes. they can do their jobs mm -hmm. and stay safe. Um, and understand also what they're going through and don't expect them to be superheroes because no one's wearing a cape. You know, they are actual human beings and um, no, we're not in the comic books here. So I think that's sort of also what I wanted to really be clear about. Well, and, and again, and, and I also want to be clear for anybody watching uh, this interview because I don't want to lead anybody astray thinking that this is um, you know, a dry broccoli movie kind of approach to this um, because you really do get into the humanity and, and, you know, and whether it's, it's those firefighters or whether it's, you know, the, the tragedy of the people that again goes to the incredible frustration on their yeah. short-term memory, yes. uh, you know, as far as what they need to do to protect themselves afterwards. So there, there's a tremendous human element to this as well as all the factors. Um, again, the film is Bring Your Own Brigade, and we've been talking to Lucy Walker. Uh, Lucy, it, of course, it's always wonderful to talk movies with you, um, and thank you for being on the show. Yay, thank you. I'm so excited to chat to all of you, so really, thank you so much.
welcome to Sundance 2021 virtually. Uh, you're here with Bitch Talk Podcast and FilmsGoneWild.com. I'm Angela Tabora, that's my co-host Aaron Lim, and we are sitting down with Chris Bowers. The subject of a concerto is a conversation. Chris, thank you, thank you for being here today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I, I just have to start by saying how much I loved, I loved it. Um, I can't even express it with words. Um, on a, on a personal note, you know, I, I, I recently lost my father, but I recorded him. Yeah. I interviewed him seven years ago. And wow, having that footage is everything to me right now. And I tell everyone, Aaron included, I'm like, interview your parents. If you're lucky enough to have them still interview your elders, your mentors, whoever it is, you know, um, because yeah. we always say, oh, you, you tell this story all the time. I'll always remember it. But little things, you know, you, I, I'm referencing your grandfather who you, you interview in this piece. But just little things, the way he moves his eyebrows when he speaks, you know, just all those things are so beautiful and so special. So I'm just, I'm so glad that you have that and that you did that. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, and I'm just interested in knowing what kind of insights you had about yourself through interviewing your grandfather and how that has affected your your music. Yeah, I think it's um, one just kind of um, shown me the normalcy of, of uh difficulty and, 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 and working through that, you know, I think that any time that I've had to have some sort of difficult moment, I've reflected on this conversation and thought about how not only do I feel his moments were, were far more difficult than mine, but also he managed to do that while still like, um, keeping a smile on his face while still like trying to, you know, look ahead and, and be solution oriented and all of that. And so I think for me, it's been a really helpful reminder that, you know, it's really all about perspective. Like it's, it's so easy to get get bogged down with, um, especially in a year like this last year with a lot of the, our difficulties or obstacles and things like that. And, and um, you know, for somebody like him to have this stoic uh, personality moving through that and, and uh, again, look at the bright side of things, or not even the bright side, more so just like the solution, like trying to figure out how to get around the issue rather than looking at the issue is uh, such a, a beautiful thing that I've, I've continued to try to hold on to. Throughout the film, it feels like, and, and I want you to speak more to this, it feels like your grandfather's been there every step of the way. Is that true? I mean, yeah, my family's really close. So like, uh, uh, you know, my I grew up maybe like less than five minutes from my grandparents' house and my parents um, were really busy when I was a kid. So my grandparents, like my grandmother picked me up from school almost every day and I, I would spend, spend a lot of time with them. But they were at every recital, every like concert, every, uh, yeah, every performance in Los Angeles, they were definitely at and have always been really um, supportive and helpful along the way. Yeah, even the Marie Calendar's uh, performance, <laughs> which I loved. I so love that. So cute, yes. <laughs> like that, that really like started um, a lot for me because basically we, we used to go to this Marie Calendar's after uh, school pretty frequently for dinner and then this piano there. So he asked me if I could go over and um, play and ask the guy if I could play for a second. And one of the time he did that very frequently. And one of the times that he did that, there were these older women that were at the restaurant that happened to run a series of competitions for young black musicians in Los Angeles. And they heard me playing when I was like 12 years old. And then I did all those competitions when I was in high school. And those competitions were so helpful, not only for me financially, but also just like for me to feel like 
I was really good at something and really try to, um, you know, uh, see other students that look like me playing music and, and excelling at it. And so finding that environment really came from those Marie Callender's little like uh, performances, which is really wild. I love Marie Callender. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> the, the Frisco Burger. We're, we're in the Bay. And yeah. Frisco Burger, even though we don't really call it Frisco, but the Frisco Burger was is where it's at. So it's kind of full circle. We were meant yeah. to have this conversation. Yes, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> but even, even you know, the, the piece is titled For a Younger Self. You're interviewing mm. your grandfather throughout. Did you have the intention of, of creating mm -hmm. this sort of behind the scenes documentary on it or... How did that come about? Because it just all interweaves so beautifully. Yeah, it's pretty wild and, and very, um, you know, like divine. Or, or it's just really uh, uh, fortuitous how it all came together because really what happened was uh, my co-director, Ben Proudfoot, had approached me about um, the LA Phil wanted to do stories about LA music um, or just LA music stories. And so he pitched this idea of me working on this concerto. And when we got together to talk about how he would follow me and what we would kind of focus on, I happened to that day be coming from an event that was celebrating, celebrating my grandfather. And so I was like dressed up and Ben was like, what's going on? And I was like, oh, my grandfather just had this like dedication to him with this building that he owns. And then I just went into his whole story and talked about it. he came from Florida. And Ben was like, man, that's such an incredible, like we have to figure out how to get that into this story. And so then we, we just started talking about how we could, uh, frame those two things together and and if my grandfather would be willing to tell that story and if I could help kind of get that with him and um yeah it really just it had a, had that event not happened that day then we would have had a, a, a boring documentary about a concerto as opposed to like my grandfather's story which is pretty exciting and and uh, talking about your grandfather's story did you already know the origin story or were there things during this process that you learned that were new to you there were definitely things that were new. I, I learned that, um, you know, I knew that he, I knew that he hitchhiked, but I didn't know that he um, never had heard of Los Angeles and, and uh, just randomly ended up there. And I knew that he ended up in like New York at some point in Detroit. And he told some of these different stories about some of the difficulties he found along the way. Um, but I also didn't realize all the the obstacles with the cleaners. I kind of thought it was a pretty smooth transition from once he got here and then, um, you know, sort of working for the cleaners, which is actually my grandmother's parents' cleaners, and then was able to buy it with them or from them. And I feel like it, um, it wasn't until uh, this story that he told me about how he had to get some sort of um, uh, all, all the obstacles with like the loan, for example, or mm -hmm. there's another story that didn't make it into the film where he had to take a test and he took the test over and over again in LA and knew that he was flawless, but some reason kept failing the test. And then at some point he realized that the guy giving the test must be racist. And so he just went to um, the Bay and got, did a test there and then passed and then came back and then was able to, to move forward with the cleaners. So it was like all these little things where, you know, again, with that loan, it was so incredible that for him, he was just like, okay, well, if they're not going to give it to me because of that, I'll figure out another way to get this loan. And, and uh, yeah, those kinds of stories were things that came out in this, in this film. That's amazing. And I think, I mean, you're, you yourself are a trail, a trailblazer in your field. And, and um, how, how, I, I feel like stories like that kind of make it easier to, you know, kind of take that, that burden and, and, and make it, make it a little, a little easier to, uh, to, to share your work and, and, and not feel like you, you don't belong or, or, or something like that. Is that, is it, 
has it helped in, in giving you strength to just kind of be who you are in your field, even though everyone may not look like you and you may not feel like at times you belong? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's, it's um, funny because most of that conversation that day, I found myself asking questions to try to get him to say that he doubted himself at some point. And there were so many times where he was just like, why would I do that? Like what, like he was just like kind of starting to get annoyed with the question almost because it didn't even make sense to him or compute for him. And it actually was helpful for me because I started to reflect on, on uh, how much of my life I've had that, and that um, mentality and that attitude. I mean, I think that's part of why I even said yes to a concerto, not having you know, <laughs> a really right one in the first place. Like there's a bit of that in there, but that being said, it's, it's not until you know, doing something that's in the classical space or, or even as a film composer, like you said, not really seeing, having only a few people that I could think of that, um, that uh, looked like me, it, it definitely started to feel a little bit more like um, uh, something I should reconsider or, or think about or just, you know, really want to make sure that I'm, I'm um, uh, able to be there, like whether it's technique or skill level or whatever else. And seeing somebody like him just kind of never doubt that but but be really focused on figuring it out because there's a difference between like not doubting yourself and then having a false sense of confidence of like oh yeah I got this or whatever but he didn't doubt himself he just put all his energy into the work and trying to figure out how to do the best job he could and for me I feel like that's been the best reminder is that it's it feels it's always felt false for me to be like oh you got this you're great it's more so like okay well, what do you need to do to get the work done like what like you feel this nervous for a reason because it means a lot and because there are stakes and and just focus on the work and and uh, and recognize how difficult it's going to be looking at, at his journey, you know. And Chris, you you write this concerto for a younger self and it it debuts on February 8th, 2020. And I am like, when I watched it, I'm like, oh, oh my God, <laughs> yeah. like, Hopefully you know, you anything there, no, yeah. I know. But <laughs> how do you feel looking back at that time? Because I mean, <laughs> yeah, was that your last big hurrah? Oh yeah, yeah. That's definitely the last. That was the last like live concert that I was at and like live event. And um, yeah, it was pretty pretty wild. And just thinking about how how much of that, like the idea of getting my grandparents to go see a concert now is just you know not like impossible. I mean, not only the fact that there aren't any concerts right now, but even when it happens, like you know, it's it's such a crazy thing to kind of think about um how lucky we were to to be able to see this orchestra play this music and and uh and then only a few weeks later not be able to do that for a while yeah and yeah. with with covid yeah. and with 2020 have you been able to hunker down a little bit and write more music or how how has the process been in the year been for you yeah it's been it's been good i mean i have to say i've been really uh blessed in that i've been super busy the entire time like most of the projects that i was on happened to finish shooting before covid really hit so we were able to to get into it and um like i did this show called bridgerton and then also um oh no one's heard of that <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> i've never heard of that show can you tell me more <laughs> sorry <laughs> um and uh yeah that took up most of the time and then i'm finishing uh space jam right now and and actually, I got. I haven't heard of that either. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, awesome. I, I actually, just got a commission to write my second concerto, which actually is going to be for the LA Phil, which I'm super excited about. Um, wow. Yeah. So it's great. It's, yeah, staying busy, and I got. I've seen my grandparents a couple of times. My wife and I caught COVID in November, so we had to like kind oh. of second, but we've seen them. Oh. 
You okay? Are you all okay? I mean, I assume. Yeah, so. you just throw that in at the end. And, now I have so many more Brid questions. Bridgerton and uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're feeling okay. I mean, it was relatively mild. We're thankful for that. Like we we found out the um, we thought we might have been exposed like a couple of days before Thanksgiving, so we decided not to see my family. And then that Friday, we came down with symptoms and felt mo more so just lucky we didn't give it to any of them or like you know um, yeah. Then we we've kind of been staying hunkered down. She just went back to work and I've just been writing. So it's, it's uh, yeah, been feeling relatively, uh, we're, we're thankful it's relatively mild, yeah. Oh, good, good, glad to hear it. Well, we have to wrap, but I just, uh, you know, this is called For a Younger Self and everybody takes in art differently, but what are you trying to express to your younger self with this piece? I think just um, like, you know, there's something about moving through difficult moments and adding an additional pressure or weight or pain uh, internally to yourself. And, and, you know, there are times where I look back and look through something that I made it through and it probably didn't need to feel as bad as it did because of how much more I was adding on to, you know, uh, to myself just mentally as far as stress or, or concerns or things like that. So really just trying to find a sense of, of ease and peace and, um, and clarity uh, with and calmness through any of those difficult moments so that you can at least try to uh, maintain what's what's within you know while everything without is, is a bit chaotic that's beautiful thank you so much this has been such yeah. an honor talking with you we loved it again we, we have chris bowers from concerto as a conversation and we can't wait to see what you do next thank you thank you both really we'll see you we'll see you at marie calendars <laughs> <laughs>